If you would stand with me, please, for the reading of God's Word, open your Bibles to Colossians 3, and while we'll be dealing with just verse 17, to maintain our context, let's begin reading with verse 15. Colossians 3, 15 through 17. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Let's pray. Lord, just now we would ask that you would open our minds keeping them from getting distracted and soften our hearts as you speak to us through your word. For it's in Christ that we ask it. Amen. Well, as I read verse 17 this morning, did you consider that a command or a statement of fact? How how did you take that? Is Paul commanding us in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus? Or is he making a statement based on what he has previously said? Verse 1, those raised with Christ. That's who he's talking to. Verse 2, who set their minds on things above. Verse 3, who have died to their old way of life. Therefore, verse 4, Christ is their life. Verse 5, who put to death sexual immorality, impurities, evil desires, all forms of idolatry. And he just continues, as we see in verse 12, you who are holy and beloved, that's who he's talking to, put on kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Verse 13, forgiving each other. 14, binding everything together in love. 15, letting the peace of Christ rule like an umpire in your lives. Verse 16, as the word of Christ dwells in you richly, teach and admonish in all wisdom, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to the Lord. So what do you say? Is this not a statement of fact? Your actions, whatever you do, word and deed, everything is done in the name of the Lord Jesus as you give thanks through him to God the Father. I want us to look briefly this morning at the actions, the awareness, and the attitudes that are expressed by those he calls holy and beloved. Now in verse 17, see that first word there, whatever? That's actually a combination of four Greek words. Whatever doesn't really capture the, uh, the full impact of, of what's being said here. This is the most inclusive statement possible. It literally means everything, all possibilities. Nothing is exempt. In Greek, this is called a genitive absolute. The four words translated whatever, each individually and especially when combined, emphasize that every action, every single one of them, comment or behavior, doesn't matter. Everything you do, you think, you say, When you're at the gym, when you're driving in the car, 
when you're doing homework with kids, when you're eating supper, when you're playing ball, when you are at work, when you are relaxing in your home, when you teach, when you get gas, when you buy groceries, every aspect, every aspect of life, no exceptions. Every word out of your mouth, everything that comes out of your life reveals who you are in Christ. One of my daughters was shopping at Aldi's and at the cash register was a customer who, to put it mildly, was upset. And the young clerk was trying to resolve the issue, but the lady would have nothing to do with that. She just kept getting nastier and nastier and nastier. Nothing this little clerk did would satisfy her. Finally, she stormed off. After my daughter checked out, she goes into the parking lot and she sees on the back of this lady's car a Christian bumper sticker. If that clerk had been watching as this lady drove away and she saw that Christian bumper sticker, let me ask you this. Do you think that she would be willing to worship at that lady's church? Would she have concluded that this person's speech, this person's conduct, was the result of her life in Christ? You mean, all of us might be able to identify with those kind of failings to one degree or another. I mean, they're embarrassing moments, are they not? When we're reminded that we're not as fully sanctified yet as we would like to be, that we're not all that we want to be, we're not all that we're going to be yet. But Paul's point is this. We are not just Christians on Sunday. We don't just come in here and look really, really good when we're in worship. And then when we walk out on Monday, Monday through Saturday, we kind of back to our old self again. See, his point is those raised with Christ, who set their minds on things above, who have put off the old self, who are putting on the compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and forgiveness and love and all of that. Those who let the word of Christ dwell in them richly. Those who sing with thankfulness in their hearts. His point is, whatever they say, whatever they do, word or deed, should be increasingly reflecting who they are in Christ. You know, one of the most beautiful names in the Bible is that of Judah. It's why the Jews are called Jews. It's because the incarnate arrival of Christ is going to come through Judah. It means praise. When you translate the Hebrew for Judah into English, in the New Testament, it's translated Judas. Judas? Why do people not name their kids Judas? It's a beautiful name. They'll give it to their dog, might give it to their mule, but they won't saddle their kid with that name. Why? Well, it's associated with being a deceiver. It's associated with being a betrayer, one who is disloyal, somebody who can't be trusted. You don't want to give your kid the name Judas. Paul's point is you don't want to saddle him with that name or you don't want to saddle him with that kind of life either. 
Beware of the words that come out of your mouth. Beware of the behavior that comes forth from your life. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, this is just great. I mean, you know, I, I got up, I come over here to worship on Sunday, and you're making me feel like a terrible Christian because I, I, there are times when I have made a fool out of myself, losing my temper, throwing fits, acting in ways that in no way reflect the genuine faith that I, I really do have in Christ. So what am I to do? What am I to do? I mean, repenting is always a good place to start. Certainly, hating those Failings in your life are always a good sign. But the question is, how do we keep from repeating those? How do we do that? He tells you. You see that word do? It's not in the Greek. That's why I didn't read it in the text this morning. It's not there. Now, those who translate the scriptures believe that it's implied, and so they will put do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. But it's not in the Greek. His point is everything, everything. You don't just do it, 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 it's you, it's who you are, word and deed, everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Well, how do we do that? Well, first of all, we, we've got to maintain an awareness of who we are, right? Realizing if it were not for Christ, our prayers wouldn't get past the ceiling. If it wasn't for the, for the reconciling work of Christ, our, our voices that we just lifted in praise would never reach the Lord, never. If it wasn't for his reconciling work, when we, when we teach or when we serve or when we do good to others, those acts of kindness would be in vain. The testimonies we give, talking about how the Lord is doing wonderful things in our lives, they would be meaningless. If it wasn't for the reconciling work of Christ I mean we wouldn't even be able to understand the gospel we'd still have scales on our eyes we'd still be blinded to the truth if it were not for the grace of God through the finished work of Christ see Jesus is not just somebody who died for us he is someone who lives for us was that not the point of, of Paul when he was talking to these proud Athenians these Greeks and uh, they had all these statues throughout the town. And he's standing there on Mars Hill and he's teaching and so forth. They had this statue to the unknown God. It's the God who created the universe that we do not know. And he said, let me tell you about the God you do not know. Let me tell you about him. Let me tell you about the God who is the sustainer of life. Let me tell you about the one true God who has revealed himself in Christ. In whom we live and move and have our being that was a that was a greek saying and he attributed that to christ everything we say everything we do everything we are reveals who who we have been recreated to be in christ and quite frankly folks this is why our opinions are not to be the issue when we speak to our culture and our culture will try to make our opinions the issue. And we cannot allow that to happen. You hear people say, you know, well, my Jesus would never reject the lifestyle of my friends. No matter how immoral you might think they are living. No matter how perverted you might think they are. All they're doing is giving their opinion about Jesus. That's their opinion. 
which, by the way, contradicts the words of Christ that dwells in you richly. Because they see Jesus as the one who saves them by his death, but in no way is Lord of their life. No way. They've made him into their servant. He is to behave according to their will, on their terms. Because in their minds, Jesus is supposed to accept and to embrace what they think is right. They've created a Jesus in their own image that in no way resembles the real Jesus. I'll give you an example of this. It just came up recently. Governor Gavin Newsom, California, professing Catholic, um, claims to be a member of the Catholic Church. And he's putting up billboards all across America. You'll probably see them here in Kentucky, especially if, if Amendment 2 passes. If enough people vote yes on Amendment 2, then you know, you're going to see these billboards where he is using Christ's commandment out of Mark 12, love thy neighbor as thyself, to invite all who want to end the lives of children in the womb, come to California. Come. We will take their lives for you. Is that the message of Christ? Or is that Governor Newsom's opinion about Christ? Let me give you the background to that. For over a thousand years, um, over in, in places like Lebanon and Syria and so forth, the Phoenicians practiced the worship of Molech. And the way that you worship Molech was by sacrificing children especially babies. You sacrifice them to him. You're giving him the best that you have. And you know what Israel did? Instead of speaking to the culture, they compromised with it. And they took their Hebrew word, melech, which means king, and they added vowels from the Hebrew word, for shame, Bosheth. And they took Melech and Bosheth and they put it together into Molech, which means king of shameful sacrifice. And you know what? They, they would worship Molech outside of Jerusalem in a place called the Valley of Hinnom. When you transliterate Hinnom, from Hebrew into Greek, you get Gehenna. That's the place that Christ uses as an illustration for eternal damnation. Place where the worm never dies, where the fires never go out. So it's an eternal damnation. What they did was they took what God's word said and they compromised it with their culture in order to be accepted by their culture. And Paul's point is that's not 
you. Remember in our study in John 15, Christ said, I am the vine, you are the branches, you will bear much fruit, you will do that. Apart from me, you can do nothing, but you, you will bear much fruit because I'm the vine, you are the branches that are attached to me. So if I accomplish anything of eternal value in this life, it will be by his spirit, but it will be according to his word that reflects his will that is to be done his way. To do everything, word and deed, in the name of Jesus requires a constant awareness of who I am in Christ. We don't govern Christ. He governs us. He is the one who is Lord. He does not cater to what we think is acceptable. And so Paul's point is those raised with him who who have set their minds on things above, who have put off the old self, who let the word of Christ dwell in them richly. They will admonish one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, and they will do everything, word and deed, in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to the Father. That's who they are. Do you see how often this attitude of thanksgiving is emphasized? Look at verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Verse 17. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. You know what the root word is for thanks? Eucharisteo. Eucharisteo. It's where we get the word Eucharist. It's another word for thanks it's another word for the Lord's Supper where we give thanks you know one of the reasons that I I think that for the most part many are not as thankful to the Lord as they ought to be is they really have a lack of understanding of God's holiness as well as a lack of understanding of our hopelessness as sinners and I'm thinking boy if we could only have an Isaiah type experience remember Isaiah When after 52 years of relative peace, the king of Judah dies of leprosy. This is 740 B.C. And Isaiah goes over to the temple and the Lord reveals his Shekinah glory to him. He says it's high and exalted, filling the temple. And in the Lord's manifested presence... Isaiah, knowing, knowing that he is a sinner in the presence of a holy God, he says, woe is me. Woe, I am ruined. Man, I live among people of unclean lips, and here I am in the presence of a holy God. I am in big trouble. And then he sees the seraphim. The seraphim. These fiery, angelic beings who are saying, holy, holy, holy is God Almighty. And the sound of their voices is shaking the temple. And the Shekinah glory of God is filling it with smoke. And rather than consuming Isaiah with the judgment that he certainly as a sinner deserved, the Lord makes him a messenger to Judah. He is to call the southern kingdom, Judah, to repentance. And Isaiah was so thankful, 
so thankful for his deliverance. He was so thankful for the mercies of God. He was so thankful for the privilege that he was given to serve the Lord. He humbly says, here I am, Lord, use me, use me. And as a result of his preaching, a revival spreads throughout the land. You can read about it this afternoon if you want to. Turn to 2 Kings 19, or it's also in Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 32. A similar response is seen in the New Testament when when Peter, remember him, when he, he's, he's fishing, he's a professional fisherman, and they've been fishing all night to catch nothing. This is in Luke 5, read it for yourself. And Christ says, well, cast your nets on the other side. And it's like, come on, we know what we're doing out here. Our boat's constantly moving. We know how to catch fish. I said, cast your net on the other side. All right, all right. Throws it out there. When he pulls it in, there's so many fish, his, his boat begins to sink. And Peter realizes, wow, wow, you really are divine. You're in charge of nature. You're in charge of the fish of the sea. And he says, depart from me. Depart from me. Why? I am a sinful man, O Lord. And, you know, Peter, he, he would have some failings along the way after that. But, you know, Peter was so thankful for the mercies of God that he experienced in Christ that he really was faithful all the way to the end, in word and deed, all the way to the end. Are you that thankful? Are you? For what the Lord has done for you in Christ, that everything, everything, word and deed, is done in his name as you are giving thanks through Christ to God the Father for what he has done for you in Christ. You know, we at times can kind of compartmentalize our faith and choosing when and where and in what ways we want our faith to be expressed. And, and there are some sacred arenas like church. I mean, when you come to church here, I mean, it's kind of the thing to be a Christian, <laughs> And so when you're here, you, you do pretty well with that inside these walls. I, I think we all try to do that, don't we, on Sundays? But then there's those secular venues. And there's that temptation to just kind of check our Christianity at the door. and You know, got to kind of blend in with, with every, I mean, who wants to be rejected? We all want to be accepted, right? We don't want people to dislike us. Colossians 3 is simply saying this. There is to be no such thing as a secular place in the Christian life. No event, no activity, no speech is exempt from the Lordship of Christ. About 500 years ago, actually 505 to be a little more exact, at the end of this month, that's what we're going to be celebrating with the fall festival. And I hope you'll sign up back here to participate in that. But the Protestant Reformation, <clears throat> what they did was to correct a medieval notion that man is reconciled to the Lord through religious sacrament. That somehow or another we can earn favor with God through ritual and ceremony. And what the Protestant Reformation did is they took us back to the Bible. And they pointed out that our salvation is by the grace of God through faith in Christ. And it was a good thing. It was a great thing. But, but, 
the Reformation, while they corrected the doctrinal error, it did not lead immediately to how the church functioned within its culture. And so what happened is you had, you had fighting going on between Protestants and Catholics for years after that, for decades after that. Bloodbaths as to who was going to dominate in each country until finally you get to the what's called the 30-year war and what ended it was a series of, of treaties in Germany called the Peace of Westphalia and what that did is it led to an agreement whereby each country would now choose which denomination would be the official state religion the idea of freedom of religion was a foreign concept at this point Because in, in Europe, Catholicism had been the state church. In Italy and in Spain and in France and Ireland and so forth for centuries. Centuries. Going all the way back to the, the 6th century where, where it kind of all kind of emerged under um, Gregory the Great, 590 AD. But now after the Protestant Reformation, you got Presbyterianism has become the state religion in the Netherlands because of, of John Calvin's influence. It has become the state uh, church in, in Scotland due to John Knox's influence. And, and then you've got Lutheranism has become the state church there in Germany because of Martin Luther's influence. And there in England, you've got the Anglican church, which Anglican just simply means England and uh, English. And so there in England, I mean, that, that dates back to King Henry VIII when he wanted his annulment. <laughs> he wanted his annulment. He was married to Catherine of Argonne, who was the daughter of Isabella and Ferdinand, who are Mr. and Mrs. Catholic down in Spain. And he wants an annulment because he wants to get with Anne Boleyn. And so what's he do? He secedes from the Catholic Church. He creates the Anglican Church, which is basically a Catholic Church with him as the head instead of the Pope. It still functions like that to this day. Whoever the uh, king or queen is that is in line is the head of the church, the Anglican Church. And during this time, there were Baptists kind of scattered throughout all of this that were persecuted by nearly everybody around them. But wherever the state has influence over any denomination, what you're going to see is ungodly men will gain power and influence. It's been going on like that since the 4th century when Theodosius declared that everyone born into the Roman Empire will be a member of the Roman Church. And therefore, you've got unregenerate individuals who are members of the church. And so what you can do is you can now identify with a church in name, kind of like Governor Newsom. I identify with this church in name. While in word and deed, you can support paganism. And so what happened is this, this led to a movement because of the corruption of the church, as it did early on after the 4th century, it, it led to the monastic movement. We're, we're just going to get out of here. We're going to become hermits. We're going to go live in caves. We're going to do all this kind of stuff. And so forth. Well, after the Protestant Reformation, what this led to, it was, a, it was a movement whereby they said, look, you can't just give lip service to the authority of the Bible. Either God's word dwells in you richly and governs your speech, 
governs your lives, governs your work, governs your attitudes, governs every thought that you have, and it leads to your obedience to Christ, or it doesn't. Or you don't have the word of God dwelling in you richly. They held that the Bible was not merely authoritative on issues of heaven and hell and matters of life after death and so forth. No, it, had, it was the, the authority over all of your life. It is the peace of Christ that rules. It is the word of Christ that governs. And that's why many of our great educational institutions were born out of this movement. Why is that? Because they saw the need to train our young people in this. How to live to God's glory. I mean, this is the period of time when you see modern science is born. All of life was viewed under the authority of God's word. And you see great mathematicians and astronomers like Kepler and Galileo and Newton Discovering all of God's creation is fascinating. And it's worthy to be studied with dignity. And at the same time, you've got Gutenberg's printing press over here just cranking out the Bibles in languages that the common man can read for himself. And so now you've got Christians who are having what's called quiet times every day. They're reading their Bible and they're praying. They not only sang psalms, they began to write hymns. And your work was sacred. Didn't matter what it was. It was done to the glory of God instead of for the approval of man. And so it didn't make any difference whether you were a silversmith or you were a farmer planting wheat. You did it to the glory of God. And the king, oh, listen, the king that breaks the laws of God is a king that needs to be resisted. And that served for many to be the basis for the American Revolution. And this commitment to Jesus as Lord in word and deed, that's what led folks that were on these soils, America, which we were not even a nation at this point, but those that were here, many of whom had first come over for religious freedom, those who were here went into a revival that was called the Great Awakening. That was the name of the revival. Man, it produced some of the greatest theologians ever. I mean, Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, and man, you had great leaders like David Brainerd and, and Gilbert Tennant. You know, Gilbert Tennant says, man, I tell you what, my kids are going to be grounded in God's word. And other people said, we want that too. And so they began sending their kids over to him in his little log cabin there, and it became known as the Log Cabin College. And he grounded many of the founding fathers who were committed to God's word. Not the deists, but the others committed them to God's word. They were going to live their life to the glory of God, and they were all in. Everything they had, they were going to, to spend. <clears throat> and when they moved that little log cabin college out of Pennsylvania and across the state line into New Jersey, it was known as the College of New Jersey, and then later known as Princeton. And you had some great educators come out of that movement, teaching young people the truths of God's word. And, and that led to the start, not just of, of Princeton, not just Harvard and Yale and Princeton. No, it led to the start of Rutgers, Brown, Dartmouth, many of those universities. Man, you had great songwriters that came out of that. 
Guys like Charles Wesley who wrote Hark the Herald Angels Sing and 9,000 other hymns. John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace. Isaac Watts who who not only put psalms to music, he put Moses' Psalm 90 to music. And and they took Psalm 98 and that's where you get joy to the world. But he also wrote, you know, at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light. We're marching to Zion. All of those great hymns came out of this. Out of this movement where Christians are committed to God's word dwelling in them richly. And so everything that came out of their mouth, everything that came out of their life was dedicated, dedicated to their Lord and Savior as they gave thanks through Christ to their Heavenly Father. So what characterizes someone who's committed to Jesus as Lord? Well, there are many things, but we don't have time for them this morning. And I thought, well, it might be best if we just gave you two really simple things to just, you you can only take away so much. And so let's keep it simple this morning. Two things. Number one, it's people who have a reverence for the Lord. You remember in the days of Malachi, when the people who claimed they were God's people, what were they doing? They were bringing their blind and their lame and their diseased animals as sacrifices to the Lord. That's what they were given to the Lord. Why? Because they weren't keeping the best for themselves. And Malachi says, is that the way you would treat your earthly father? Is that how you would express your appreciation to him? Is that how you express your love to him? Really? Why are you treating your Heavenly Father with this kind of contempt? One of the first characteristics you'll notice about a true Christian is they have a reverence for the Lord. Secondly, they demonstrate their love for the Lord, not just in how they reverence Him or worship Him or give to Him, but how they obey Him. You know, in Christ's day, the Pharisees wore what was called phylacteries. That's the Greek word for guard. They were these little small leather boxes that they made. And they would write out scripture and put them inside the boxes. And they would wear them inside their left arm. And they would also put them on their forehead. Say, well, why? Well, because they went back to Deuteronomy 6, where the Lord said that before you go into the promised land, I want my word to remain upon your heart. That's verse 6. And so the Pharisees, what they do is they put these scriptures inside these leather boxes and they strap them to their left arm so that every time they do this, that, that scripture is right over top of their heart. And the Lord said that his word shall be on their foreheads. What he meant is, you're not to forget this. It's right there, always in the front of your mind. This is how you think. This is what leads to your obedience. This is how you love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. (laughs) The Pharisees, no, no, no. They took that, that, that spiritual matter and they turned it into a physical ritual. Let's, uh, let's, let's strap these boxes to our forehead. Walk around, show everybody how holy we are. Colossians 3 reminds us 
We don't put on a show on Sundays to make people think that we are holy, to make people think that we are Christian. No, we live Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all the way to Saturday. We live in a way that honors Christ as our Lord. You know, Philip Brooks, the pastor who wrote O Little Town of Bethlehem, was crossing the Harvard campus one day about the same time that a student was asking his professor, exactly what is a Christian? And the professor answered as he was looking out his window and he saw Brooks going across the campus there, and he said, what is a Christian? You know, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But there goes one. I'm not sure how to define them, but there goes one. There goes a man who lives his life, word and deed, to Jesus Christ as his Lord, giving thanks through Christ to his Heavenly Father. You know, the Apostle Paul who's writing this to the church at Colossae, also wrote to the church at Philippi. And he says, you know, there's one thing I do. I gave you two things, but, but he said, there's one thing I do, just one. Forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, here's what I do. I press on toward the goal for the prize at the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is not limited to just what we do as far as how we put forth our human effort. But this is something we also trust by faith for the Lord to do. For the Lord to do. As Paul pointed this out to the church at Philippi, he said, he who began a good work in you, he will bring it to a completion. He will do it. And this is about 10 years after Paul had founded the church there in Philippi. He's expressing confidence, not in the people. He's expressing confidence in the Lord to accomplish his purposes in the lives of his people as the Holy Spirit chips away at their sin, enabling them to press on towards the call of God till the day of Christ when their sanctification matures and blossoms into glorification, where we are not just saved from the power of sin, we are now saved from the presence of sin. And so... Sometimes people will ask, well, what is, what is God's part in the sanctification of Christians? And my answer is, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. You open up your life like a sail to the wind. Can you control the wind? You cannot. The wind blows wherever the wind pleases. So what is the Lord's role in sanctifying me? That's his business. That's his business. And I know that he doesn't need my counsel, doesn't need my opinion. Needs my obedience. And he will never fail. My job, set the alarm. Get up, take a shower, get dressed, read his word, pray, confess my sin. And then when I walk out that door, it's constantly on my mind, an awareness, an awareness of who I am in Christ so that every word and every deed is done in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to our Heavenly Father. And you know what? I am trusting him to complete the work that he has begun in me. 
It's his work. I'm just his servant. Do you have questions? If you do, you can go to the connect table. There'll be somebody back there to answer them. Uh, if you need prayer, then there is a prayer room right over here. It's uh, the door. It's on the other side of these partitions here, just across from the women's bathroom. You can go in there and, and someone will pray with you. Um, if you have greater questions, if you have something, you, you have bigger issues that you'd like to discuss, I'll be available this week for you to come to my study. And um, I'll do everything I can to help you. Stay with me as we pray together. Lord, thank you for the fellowship that you have given us to enjoy within the body of Christ here. May we be found faithful in word and in deed as we are continually giving thanks for what you have done for us and are doing for us in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.